Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And as our longtime fellow saloners here can tell the newcomers, I've, well, I've probably played Terrence McKenna a little too much over the last ten and a half years now, well over 200 times. But as you will soon hear, by early 1991, Terrence himself was beginning to get a little tired of talking mainly about psychoactive substances, uh, you know, where they came from and how to use them. And so today, you're going to hear Terrence uh, confronting that fact himself and then uh, branching off into what over time became a new tangent for him. By February of 1991, uh, some people were coming back to Terrence's workshop simply to find out what's new. <laughs> At least that was the case on the West Coast at uh, places like Esalen. But for what it's worth, news about this guy named Terrence McKenna had not really reached more than a handful of people on the East Coast by then. It wasn't until Zandor interviewed Terrence for Mondo 2000 sometime in 1993 that I first learned about him. But out on the West Coast, uh, well, Terrence was already quite well known. In fact, the lady who is now my wife began attending his lectures as far back as 1983, an entire decade before I even heard his name. So uh, that should give you a little idea of how different the culture is on the two coasts of this country. And as you listen to Terence talking about various psychedelics, keep in mind that back when he was giving this talk, there was next to nothing available other than his lectures in the way of uh, literature or recorded information about uh, substances such as ayahuasca, for example. There were scholarly texts here and there, but as far as I know, when Terence gave the talk that we are about to listen to, the only information about ayahuasca in the popular press was uh, William Burroughs' Yahe letters, uh, which didn't exactly present a very positive picture about that substance. So uh, let's see what the state of psychedelic information was like back then as we joined Terence McKenna and a small group of friends for a weekend of mind candy in the early winter of 1991. This is the first um, time I've been at Esalen this year, and by my way of counting decades, that means it's the time in the new decade. And I've been away from the part of my life that means traveling for about four months, and always in that period I try to think about what I'm doing and how the rap is evolving and the world and the tension between these things. And, uh, you know, Leo came to see what's new. This is a question that I ask myself about this rap, is what's new. And then there's always a tension between people who say, I've, I don't know very much about you, and then the faces I recognize who I know can deliver this stuff chapter and verse uh, the same intonation and the same inflection, you know. And uh, they must greet the other characters with sinking hearts because then we're going to go all the way back and, and, uh, and start from the beginning. Because part of what I do is I try to lead people's attention 
to the psychedelic experience through traditional shamanic use of visionary plants. And that has become, it's my life's enthusiasm, but it's become more and more for me a kind of um, public service work almost because I don't think anybody should go to the grave without having a psychedelic experience. I think that's an obscene thing to contemplate, you know, that it's just like part of living. You know, you do certain things and that's one of them and you can reject it or embrace it, but, you know, you do know about these things. And so that's this generalized thing which I can lead people to and that I know a lot about the botany, the chemistry, the ethnography, the neurophysiology, the history, all of this stuff, because this is just what my intellectual life has been. And then there's this other thing which become, which is, I have a different relationship to, and I'm much less certain of, but I enjoy more. And that's sort of the what I think's happening end of things. And it's pure and simple, a kind of ego trip, because it's just model-making about reality. But for me, the psychedelic experience didn't stop at the water's edge of psychotherapy. It seems instead to have like expanded to fill all intellectual space so that it has become literally an explanation for everything and has embedded within it explanations for everything. So instead of just taking the psychedelic experience and attempting to integrate it personally and therapeutically, I've tended to emphasize the global, historical, and group impact of what it is. And then that casts me in the role, I mean, I shudder that the word should pass my lips, but the role of a kind of a philosopher, a kind of a gadfly, a social critic, somebody who's standing off and looking at what's happening to the world. And this has led me to this notion uh, of what I call the archaic revival, that we can understand a structure as complex and chaotic as the 20th century, let us say, if we have recourse to an overarching metaphor that I call the archaic revival. It's a very simple notion. It's that when a society um, slams into some kind of wall, when a society becomes unraveled because the conditions upon which it has been premised become so radically altered that they are unrecognizable, a society has a response, almost like a drowning man response. And the response is to reach back into time for the last steadying metaphor, the last moment when everything made sense. Now, we have a 
beautiful textbook example of this embedded in Western history where as the medieval world began to crack up under the emergence of mercantilism, uh, secular centers of power, banking, and so forth, uh, Western civilization reached backward into its own history, seeking some kind of steadying metaphor. And what they finally came to grips with or rested on were the metaphors of classicism, uh, Greek philosophy, Roman law, Roman architecture, and so forth and so on. And the whole post-Renaissance pre-industrial world is the working out of the values of classicism, values that had been dead in the ground 1,500 years at that point, but revivified and brought forward to create the secular world of modernity with its values of democracy and so forth and so on. Now, in the 20th century, the crisis is much more profound and the values that we have to reach back to are so ancient that they cannot be found in the historical continuum at all. They are prehistoric they are archaic. And this, then, is an effort to explain the 20th century. It's larger than the New Age, larger than the psychedelic movement of the 60s. The entirety of the 20th century has gone on under the uh, aegis of this archaic revival. It begins with Freud and Jung, or earlier with Impressionism. It works its way up through uh, abstract expressionism, and it has positive and negative manifestations. Fascism uh, is a negative manifestation, but it's the shattering of the linear image inherited from print, uh, the tremendous impact that primitive art had on cubism and this sort of thing in the teens and twenties of this century. This is a revitalization uh, of Western values by a bringing forward of the archaic values. At the center of these archaic values is the institution of shamanism as uh, brilliantly uh, described and delineated by Merci Eliade, for example, and at the center of shamanism is this hallucinogenic, psychedelic encounter with a vegetable intelligence of some sort. And this is confounding to science. Uh, science as presently constituted cannot handle uh, this kind of of a notion, and yet it is uh, an experience upon which shamanism is based, but that's remote news because who among us can claim credentials in that fraternity? But it's also an accessible experience within the confines of the modern encounter with psychedelics. And 
this is it was that experience really that set me on my career as you see me before you because uh, I just couldn't believe such a thing was possible you don't have to be a believer you can come with all the equipment of rational uh, skepticism and reductionism and still if you're willing to connect the pieces together in the right order you know the angel will appear and this is uh, really confounding because first of all if the paradigms of our society, such as science and these, you know, huge edifices of intellectual energy that have been erected, are to be challenged. We each, I think, expect them to be challenged somewhere far from where we are, like, you know, at the mass accelerator in Batavia, Illinois, on the dark side of Venus, these are the places where we expect the scientific paradigm to break down in the heart of the sun or in the first milliseconds of the universe's existence you don't expect the paradigms of science to break down in your own backyard on a saturday night simply because you've eaten a mushroom (laughs) you know but they're more fragile than we thought apparently I heard Tim Leary recently say all uh, all natural laws are simply local ordinances. <laughs> There's truth to that. The problem is, I think Einstein beat him to it. So to my mind, the way in which um, the psychedelic experience transcends the therapeutic dimension is that it actually had some kind of special intimate role in human in human emergence and in the relation of human beings to nature in prehistory you see there's a mystery on this planet and it literally is a mystery you have to go in like a detective and look at the scene of the crime and try and figure out what the hell happened here Apparently, there was a population of monkeys, and then, without anybody knowing what happened, there emerged tool-using, language-using, cognition-projecting animals of a whole different sort. And the question is, what happened here? And then why did the... uh, forward progression of the epigenetic breakthrough because that's what it was suddenly there was coding there were alphabets there was language these are epigenetic phenomena means not coded into the genes but why has the epigenetic breakthrough been such a bummer why has it led into uh, greater and greater cruelty greater and greater disconnection from the earth, uh, sexism, racism, you name it. Now, see, we come out of a fairly rasty line. If you look back through the primate line, the 
phenomena of male dominance and hierarchical organization and stuff like that reaches right through the hominoid line back into the higher primates, we have always been in this bad way. At least this is what the primatologists tell us. But I think not. I think that uh, during the last million years, and because of uh, pressure on us to expand our diet from an arboreal fruit-oriented diet into an omnivorous diet that included meat, because of that pressure to expand diet, we were exposed to all kinds of mutagenic chemicals, Uh, not only hallucinogens, but growth hormones, uh, galactagogues, these are compounds which promote milk production, contraceptives of various sorts, uh, a whole spectrum of tertiary alkaloids and amines that are produced by plants in the environment for various reasons, we inculcated into our diet, and this set the stage for rapid natural selection on the numerous sportings, the numerous mutations that were being cast up by this process. Food is the key to the human emergent scenario. Well, then in there you have drugs, hallucinogens specifically. Originally they were called consciousness-expanding drugs. Well, you can imagine what a premium consciousness would have been at in this highly competitive VELT environment when all of these... Uh, ungulate mammals and hunting mammals were coming together and establishing niches in the newly emergent African grassland. And I think then that a kind of miracle occurred. It was a sim- it was not symbiosis as biologists know it, where genes of two organisms lock into each other and and become codependent for millions and millions of years. It was not that, but it was a flirtation with symbiosis. It was that the mushroom-human interaction, which was also mediated by cattle, because this was a situation of nomadic pastoralism, the mushroom-human interaction caused a series of self-reinforcing feedback loops. And those loops led directly into the production of what we call humanness. And it's very easy to understand how this occurred. It's like so. The point is here that encounter with a food item caused a series of very natural uh, actions and reactions which had the quality of reinforcing conscious self-reflection. Broca's area, which is the language-forming portion of the brain, or thought to be implicated in language formation in the brain, is extremely stimulated by psilocybin. And uh, 
people who take psilocybin sometimes fall into spontaneous states of glossolalia, language-like vocalization where there is syntactical structure in the absence of assigned meaning. It's almost as though, you know, language was the precondition for language was in the human organism and then this brought it out. The descent, the early descent of the soft palate in the human fetus is something which happens in the fetal uh, form of no other primate and seems to indicate a specific mutation towards the, the formation of speech that is less than a million years old. So, uh, see, I want to account for everything. I want to understand how it comes that out of animal and mammalian organization can come a minded species that over a span of time as brief as 10,000 years can go from a technology on the edge of the Neolithic to a technology on the edge of the solar system. And it is, uh, it is a phenomenon of mind. It is mind in action that we are witnessing. Now, it's a curious um, peculiarity of our own society that the great catalysts of mind, the psychedelic plants, are for us taboo. So we have to undergo the greatest intellectual transformation in the history of the planet, literally, in a stance of guilt, uncertainty, and looking over our shoulder over this issue of mind. Mind is a taboo thing to us. We found religions to it. We outlaw its expressions. We dance around it. It just drives us crazy. We don't know what to do with it. Well, I guess my notion is, and it's, I can't, I mean, I'm forced to this position by the evidence. I don't, I feel no natural affinity to such an airy-fairy point of view. But what I've been forced to conclude is that there actually is a mind with which we share this planet. I mean, the details don't press me because, after all, I'm only a monkey. But the great mystery of history and the great um, impetus for the fall into history is this broken connection with this mind in nature. And this is what all these yogins and religions and, you know, rishis and roshis and bhikshus and bhikshunis, this is what all the hollering is about, is that there, there is something going on. It isn't entirely a con game. It's not God Almighty. It's not, you know, the force that hung the stars like lamps in heaven. It's not that. But it is something is going on. Biology has more than one intelligent facet on this planet. And shamanism somehow found its way toward this. And uh, 50,000, 150,000 years ago, 
found a way into dialogue with this other mind. But it's a fragile dialogue because the other mind is so alien and the rise of historical forces and styles of analysis unfriendly to mental phenomena have made it recede from us, literally. And now it can only be found by uh, going literally totally outside of this society. Now to find it, you must break the law. Within the confines of the law, it cannot be found. But if you're willing to put the law behind you by flying to a country where the law does not pertain and then going to these so-called primitive people, what you discover is that while we have made the prodigal journey into history with smart bombs and high-definition television and all that, in the remote corners of the earth, in the rainforests and tundra lands of this planet, this Paleolithic secret has been kept. It still exists. It's not like the pablum that we are sold as spiritual spiritually uh, integrated realities. It is, in fact, you know, the real thing. And somehow it's important for the historical crisis that we're in. The more I see of shamanism and of the interior realities that these plants reveal, the more I've come to see that the real nature of reality is that of a tale. It's a story of some sort. It isn't the uh, spin, charge, and angular momentum of hurrying electric necessity that we inherit from... uh, 19th century physicalism. It isn't that at all. It's a story. And somehow the collectivity of humanity, of human life, is telling this story. And it's a perils of Pauline kind of thing. You know, we are at the ninth hour. The dear lady is strapped to the railroad tracks. and I, I think that the answer lies in reconnecting the super hyper-modern world with this mysterious world of, the, of this rainforest spirituality. And I don't... My approach is phenomenological. I don't say that this will make you a better person. I don't say that this is the path that Buddha trod or that Alan Watts trod or that anybody trod. I'm just saying this is the most interesting thing I've ever encountered. It contravenes all expectation and most people, including myself, would never believe such a thing existed if they hadn't had their nose rubbed in it. I cannot lose the conviction that it has something to do 
with the historical dilemma that we're in, even though it has always existed. But the rediscovery of it by high-tech societies, by people such as ourselves, is pregnant with possibility. And it is not, I'm convinced, from a fairly long amount of time spent actually hanging out with some of these folks in their in their scenes, it is not that we are returning to a completed font of ancient wisdom. It isn't that somebody knows what's going on and we have to go to them and then it'll be laid out. It's that we thought we knew what was going on and every other mature culture on the planet lives in the light of the truth that nobody knows what is going on. Shamanism, as I have encountered it, is entirely open-ended and experimental. Where shamanism is driven by ritual and taboo and that sort of thing, it isn't shamanism. It's religion, and it's decadent, and it's useless as far as I'm concerned. Shamanism is the tradition of science before there was the division between the inside and the outside, before there was the division between the observer and the observed, when you simply worked on the prima materia of being in the world, which was both yourself being in the world and then whatever else was in your immediate environment. Science has... It's a weird tear because the price of power is metaphors which nobody can understand. I mean, we are all imprisoned by this. There may be some pretty bright people in this room. I dare say there's nobody in here who could build a TV set from scratch, and that's just a throwaway object in our society. So, uh, you know, we don't have what used to be called understanding. Uh, We assume that it is on deposit somewhere, but we don't carry it around with us uh, the way people used to do. Well, yeah, it's like the American economy. So basically this is the venue or this is the area in which we'll play, talking about culture as a potentially transformable medium, talking about mind as a kind of field in transformation, something on its march through matter, through the monkeys, and on Lord knows whither. And we, as witnesses to this, I think that you know what people seem to lack is um, larger and larger views of where they stand in the cosmos correctly nested and lined up for them so that they get a correct sense of scale and importance which does not mean that you end up by reducing the human being to a gnat because that's not the correct proportion of a human being in this universe. We now know enough about the complexity of the human brain to 
replace the human being at the center of a cosmos of complexity. This is where human beings stand at the apex of creation, is in the realm of complexity. And somehow I connect the, the simple cybernetic notion of complexity into Alfred North Whitehead's notion of novelty and see complexity not simply as a, a, a kind of ramifying of detail that is ultimately a, a gridlock, but rather out of complexity emerges new states of order, novelty. The precondition for the emergence of novelty is complexity. I was with Al Wong last week at a meeting, and, and he said, uh, crisis means opportunity. And it does, because it means bifurcation along the many world lines of possibility. Crisis means opportunity. Novelty will often come in the form of crisis. But what novelty always leads toward is some kind of greater knitting together. And because now we, this is, we do not speak to each other under the normal conditions of discourse. Now we speak to each other in a situation of war. So I think it would be interesting this weekend to spend more time trying to invoke the feeling of the topological manifold of the history to come and recently around us. Because... uh, From my point of view, there's no surprises in what's going on. There's tragedy, but there's no surprises. And there's a way of looking at the future that will insulate you against against, uh, further disappointment in the short run. Because it isn't that the gates are swinging open toward Elysium. Not yet. Not yet eventually but not yet and the you know timing is everything the curse of prematurity is uh, uh, I can talk about that but another time <laughs> yeah history is the shockwave of eschatology oh I think before we're through History as the shockwave of eschatology will be covered up one side and down the other. (laughs) Ordinarily, eschatology refers to the branch of theology that deals with the last things, the end of the world, the final unraveling. I guess esk must be the Greek prefix for dealing with the end. The, in Christian theology, there is this notion of what's called the eschaton. The eschaton is the second coming, but it's also the general judgment. And uh, I like this idea, although I'm not that fond of Christian hermeneutics. I do like the idea of an attractor at the end of the historical process that's pulling everything toward it. 
I use the word eschatology a lot, and uh, and maybe with equal frequency the the word ontology, which refers to how we know things. Ontos is knowing. Ontology is the study of how we know. So, and if I say that there needs to be like a if there's an ontological division between things, it means never the twain shall meet. I mean, they're like fire and water. They have an ontological distinction. Okay. Um, well, I realized that I hadn't really introduced myself. I was so involved in getting it all run through. So I thought, for those who are unfamiliar with all this, that I should introduce myself. I'm not... It, kind of a uncomfortable thing. Why? I don't know. But uh, I'm, I started out as an art historian with a focus in Asian languages. And I got out of that because I discovered I couldn't really learn these Asian languages to the sufficient facility that would be necessary for a life of scholarship in all of that. And uh, as a child, my thing was um, a certain kind of thrill, a certain iridescence that I chased through many different venues. I mean, it began with, uh, well, I don't know what it began with, but you cut into it with fossil collecting and then butterfly collecting and then in the protophallic phase rocket manufacture which <laughs> occupied me for several very dangerous years that I was lucky to survive and and I think after rockets came Jackson Pollock and uh, it was just one thing after another and when I look leading ultimately to for me psychedelics which were the quintessence of what I had been seeking in all these other things, in science fiction, in insect collecting, all of these things. It, it was a kind of edge, a kind of um, opening into a world that I had really come to believe didn't exist because I was a uh, you know raised in the Midwest, in western Colorado, in the Sputnik era, uh, if you had talked to me in 1960, I probably wanted to be the world's first uh, Marxist astronautical engineer or you know, <laughs> some, something like that. And uh, so for me, the, the psychedelic experience was this unexpected encounter with a grail that I had given up on and I was deep into, um, you know, existential philosophy and uh, that French writer who lived in prison all his life. I read a lot of writers who never got let out of prison, I remember. <laughs> it was all very, you know, grim and claustrophobic. And then, uh, you know, I was swept along with the with the energies of my generation and I had the good fortune to go to the University of California at Berkeley 
in the fall of 1965. And it was just like being a little iron particle being drawn into the black hole of the cultural furnace that was forging the metaphors of uh, at least the decade, if not the millennium. And all of these things were there. And I saw then, it was weird, it was a strange um, disjuncture because at the same time that I was rejecting then under the influence of psychedelics and radical politics, rejecting uh, Western values, politics, civilization, I was also for the first time having it come within my reach because you know I came from a town where for excitement people would go down to the five and ten and watch them unpack crates on Saturday nights. I mean that was the big thing of the week. So, uh, you know, uh, so here then, it's like, uh, it's like in the Bob Dylan song, you know, with, with, who is it? With the professors you have discussed, great lawyers and crooks, something like that. And, uh, and so I got in the act of passing through the university, you know, a keen sense of Western institutions and the crisis that they were in and I took that with me to India and Nepal, where I was looking at Buddhist shamanism, and then later to the Amazon. And uh, I discovered, basically, I gave you the punchline last night, that the, the reality is in this archaic dimension that we have drifted so far from. I don't find it in any of the religious declensions out of that, even the ones that have very good public relations, such as yoga, for instance, and stuff like that. I mean, it's thin soup compared to, you know, the 100,000-volt spiritual energy that was flowing uh, in the late Paleolithic. So then my... uh, you know, there were many adventures and many travelings and a lot of weird knocking around because it took me a long time to grow up. In fact, I'm only now uh, got a reasonable shot at it, I think. Uh, but I became convinced. I went to the Amazon, searched through Asia, was not satisfied with that spiritual offering, went to the Amazon and there discovered that these traditions, these dimensions are still being uh, accessed. And, uh, but the Amazon is caught in a cultural crisis just like the rest of the planet. You all are extremely over-informed, I'm sure, on the crisis engulfing the world's rainforests. But what is never said along with that is that even if, you know, uh, the World Wildlife Fund and the IMF and all of these people actually get their ducks in a row and save the world's rainforests, they will not save the human ethnomedical information that has been gathered over the past 100,000 years because that's all oral information 
and it's not being handed on. People are going off to work in sawmills and wait tables and guide tours, and nobody is picking up on this stuff. And this is not a, a you know, a noble, savage rap or some kind of sob sister thing about the nobility of tribal peoples. It's a hard fact that like 85% of the prescription medicines in general medical use today are plant-derived drugs of some sort. I mean, I could say that by destroying this Amazon medical knowledge, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, but it's more serious than that. We're shooting ourselves in the head. So the, my, my real-world political ambitions boiled down to trying to save that information. And this handout you got this morning is the result of that. We uh, bought land in Hawaii, incorporated as a 501c3, bought more land, and our hobby, and by we I mean my wife Kat and I, she really runs this on a day-to-day basis. Uh, we try to save plants with a history of medical importance in tribal culture. And then that's, that's pretty much the goal. Somebody else has to take the ball from there. Homeopaths, drug companies, we're trying not to be judgmental. We just don't want the germplasm of this stuff to fall away. Well, I mention it uh, uh, because that's the physical foundation of all the other ideas that I put out. It's the idea that the most important thing to be preserved is this connection with the plants, connection back into nature. This is what is being stretched to the breaking point And if sufficiently interrupted, the whole uh, human uh, megasystem will become toxic and go critical. And and we have no idea how close we are to the cusp of this event because it isn't going to be... It isn't a scenario where things get gradually worse and worse. We're in that scenario. It's that out ahead somewhere, there's a drop-off. There's a cusp where the combined effect of all this wrong-headedness takes a sudden quantum leap in its uh, in its expression, and at that point, uh, you know, it may be irreversible. We don't know how much time we have, and people say to me, you know, well, why why psychedelics? Why is that so important? It arises out of my sense of urgency that there may be a smorgasbord of of solutions to the human dilemma if you assume a millennium, and then fewer if you assume 500 years. But I assume less than 50 years because I think there's just, uh, you know, business as usual in all dimensions, uh, resource extraction, toxification, nuclear proliferation, uh, spread of infectious disease, so forth and so on. Business as usual is the most catastrophic scenario you can imagine. You just have to extrapolate these trends 15 years into the future, and you get uh, uh, a future none of us would want to uh, live in. 
Well, um, so I thought then this morning, to, because of the interest expressed by the group, that we could probably use a discussion about ayahuasca as a kind of a bridge to many of these other issues. Some people don't know what ayahuasca is. Some people are keenly interested. Some people's interest is personal in that they're going to take it and they view it as a as an experience that lies ahead of them and what should they think about that. I'm interested in all of that, but I'm also interested in studying it, talking about it for the issues it raises about psychedelics generally in culture. Uh, and it's a good one because there's a confluence of stuff happening there. Uh, first of all, let me give you the, the basic facts. Ayahuasca is a Quechua word. It means vine of the dead. It is used to refer to a huge jungle liana, a woody epiphyte of the Malfagaceae called Banisteriopsis capi. And this plant was first described to science in 1853 by Richard Spruce. And throughout the upper Amazon basin of Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, uh, this plant is uh, boiled or sometimes merely used in a cold water infusion, almost always in the combination with one other plant to produce a beverage, a drink, that is, uh, if made properly, extremely hallucinogenic and is the basis for a shamanism over a very wide area in South America, both the indigenous tribal shamanism and the mestizo shamanism that has arisen in the populations that have moved up these rivers. Well, there are several things interesting about ayahuasca. First of all, from a chemical point of view, what it is is uh, the Banisteriopsis capi contains beta-carbolines, such as harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharman. And they are, while themselves hallucinogenic at high doses, they're not being utilized as hallucinogens in this brew. They are instead acting as MAO inhibitors, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. They are inhibiting the monoamine oxidase system in the gut so that the chemical constituent of the second plant is able to survive passage through the gut and enter the bloodstream. And the constituent of the second plant is DMT or dimethyltryptamine. Normally, this is a compound that has to be smoked to be active, but the inhibition of the MAO makes it active orally, so it becomes an orally active hallucinogen. Well, the first thing to say about this is we're dealing in a realm of extremely sophisticated pharmacological theory where a compound normally destroyed in the stomach is made absorbable in the intestine by being complexed with a second compound which suppresses an enzyme system. I mean, Western pharmacology didn't get to this kind of thinking until the 1950s. These people have been doing it since the year zero. Uh, second thing interesting about ayahuasca is that when you carry out an exhaustive survey of the constituents of ordinary 
brain metabolism in human beings, you discover both these compounds present in ordinary metabolism. In other words, this is not so much an invasive compound coming in from the outside as it is a metabolite. It's a, what ayahuasca is, is actually a soup of human neurometabolites that are going to shift the ordinary ratios of DMT, serotonin, and uh, beta-carbolines in the brain. So in a way, it's, not a, it's, it's unlike any other drug because it's entirely composed of, uh, of neurotransmitters. What else is interesting about it? What caught the eye of these early ethnographers was the persistent reports among these tribal people that uh, uh, ayahuasca-induced states of telepathy. And in fact, up until 19... I believe... Well, no, no. In 1923, Hochstein and Paradis, two European chemists, characterized the alkaloid in ayahuasca, and they actually named it telepathine. Mm. And it was carried on the books as telepathine until the 1940s when it was realized that harmine, a compound previously isolated from a giant Syrian rue, was the same compound, and then by the rules of nomenclature, that name took precedent. But it was for a while called telepathine. Well, what about this? Uh, it's, this gets, I mean, this is very interesting to me. It's subtle. It's hard to analyze. Uh, telepathy is something which happens within a domain of shared language, ordinarily. I've taken ayahuasca numbers of times with people in these native settings, and uh, there is um, there is a kind of processing of group intention that I imagine is very impressive if you are uh, if you share you know if you're part of a tribe of seventy people that has hunted, traveled, and died with each other for your whole lifetime, and then you take this stuff. I imagine you're pretty well melded together. And it's the notion that the elders of the tribe get together under situations of, of social stress, and then they take the ayahuasca, and they see what is to be done. If it's a matter of moving the hunting ground, uh, retracting hostilities from some other group, uh, moving upriver... This is the kind of thing. Well, if you think about shamanism, it has always been about these group dynamical inputs from the environment. Primarily in many societies, a shaman is a weather predictor. And uh, uh, weather becomes very important because weather is impacting on the food production capacity of the group and all kinds of other things. Then finally... And to my mind, the unique and promising aspect of this ayahuasca thing and what makes it unique among all the hallucinogens that I know is there is in the Amazon this um, folk notion of what is called an Icaro, I-C-A-R-O, Icaro. And an Icaro is a magical song it's something, it's similar to the notion 
uh, of the peyote song that while intoxicated upon ayahuasca, you will be given of a vocal empowering. But what's interesting about these Icaros is that they are, within the context of the culture where this is going on, they are criticized as pictorial and sculptural compositions, not as music. In other words, this is sound which is designed for beholding, not for hearing. And uh, I have seized upon this as possibly a tiny eye of a needle through which we might propel an entire global civilization to a new ontological order of language. Because what's happening among these tribal people is that quite literally, language is beheld, it's seen. Sound is used as the acoustical carrier wave for uh, a visual impression. Now, there are different things to be said about this. First of all, it is, I think, probably a generalized characteristic of the unhistoricized uh, or the unneuroticized human being that they are able to do this that we're talking here about a neuro-linguistic form of organization very close to the software level. In other words, potentially open to manipulation. McLuhan wrote a lot about how even within historical time, sensory ratios have shifted in the in European human beings, uh, the famous story of how uh, Thomas Aquinas was the only man in Europe of his era who could read without reading aloud, and they would bring him books of scripture and open them before him, and without making a sound, he would stare into these books, and then they would close them and question him about it, and he knew what he had read, and they just were knocked off their chairs by this. Uh, uh, McLuhan and Carpenter did studies in the 50s where they showed movies to uh, Bushmen and everything was going along fine until somebody walks out of the frame and then just pandemonium breaks loose. What happened to this person? Where did they go? Are they all right? What does it mean to, you know, so forth and so on. And, of course, the most famous episode of all, less approximately 500 years ago, the sudden crystallization of the ability to perceive perspective in Western painting, which was something that, you know, they'd been angling toward it for 250 years from from Pirandello de Francesca and Duccio and that crowd on until they got actually to... Uh, to Caravaggio and the perspectivists, there was this sense of this thing breaking through, and then it crystallized. Well, I, having gone to the Amazon, having experienced these visible acoustical states of mind, I'm wondering if uh, this doesn't indicate the human capacity for a kind of forced evolution of the language-forming capacity. 
and that I think this is what the, a large part of the culture crisis is about, is that we can move no faster than the envelope of language which we generate to describe our journey. And the propagation and evolution of language to this point has been left pretty much to grow like topsy. Uh, nobody ever conceived of the design, or and nobody except fascists, I should say, ever conceived of extending the design process into language. And the fascist experiments in this direction were always for the purpose of channeling and narrowing thought making certain things unthinkable. You know, if it's unthinkable, uh, you, you don't even have a problem. Uh, this is, uh, for instance, uh, the, in the Brezhnev era, the way uh, gay rights and homosexual rights were handled in the Soviet Union was there were no homosexuals in the Soviet Union in those days. Uh, you see, you, you, you make something uh, a domain of impossibility and then it doesn't exist as a problem. But I'm suggesting that we need to take the engineering of our language seriously, that we have three problems, or at least three problems, and one of them is the extreme... Um, the poverty of our language, that it's such a low-grade signal that we're using small mouth noises transduced through acoustical space to try and coordinate a global population of six million people. And having media to change that into an electronic signal has not apparently helped us all that much. Uh, last week I was in, in a meeting where I heard electronic media described as the ability to spread darkness at the speed of light. <clears throat> I only wish I'd thought it up myself. <laughs> so, uh, for my money, where the the psychedelic impulse and the hyper-technical impulse and the archaic revival all come together is in this idea of attempting to clean up our communications with each other and as a working engineering goal for that as we should attempt to be able to create a cultural space in which we can see what we mean. This is why I've been willing to hang out with the virtual reality crowd because, you know, I'll grasp at straws and that is a straw, believe me. Uh, but it's the hope that we could walk in uh, to our imaginations, show each other the confines of our minds. And we're not, in doing this, creating a new technology we're creating an electronic imaging of what has always been what shamanism was doing. The problem for us in this society is that shamanism lies over the border of legality. So we have to, uh, through a trick, a technological trick of smoke and mirrors, create accessibility to the dimension without trampling on the concerns of the constabulary. And, you know, this, we do this to the best of our uh, abilities. Well, you people who asked for ayahuasca, are we covering the waterfront on this? Yeah. What do you mean when you say visualize the sound? Well, it's that 
there comes a point in the, I guess it must be in the linguistic processing. I mean, I've observed it in my own brain very, very carefully over and over again. And what it is, is um, you sit and you watch and the... Um, the psychedelic molecules are accumulating at the synapse over a period of minutes this is happening first hundreds of thousands then millions then tens of millions and they are displacing the serotonin from the receptor sites and as they switch in and turn the key the electron spin resonance signature begins to shift and at first you have it's literally the sound of rushing water I mean all over the world shamans say this it's white noise I think it's the sound of one chemical regime at the synaptic domain meeting another chemical regime and there is this brief period of chaos then the displacing by the drug molecule of the ordinary agonist to the receptor and then it it's like tinkling far away tinkling bells or chiming and it comes closer and now at this point the mind goes to meet it with a projection the mind always goes to meet the nervous system and they meet somewhere in cyberspace and the projection goes onto it so for me it's a it's a nepalese it's like a nepalese marching band or it's an elf band and i i hear them coming and they're just over the hill and they're piping away and and it's you know and they're on their way and very quickly it becomes much much louder and i'm just flooded with this sense of the presence of uh, of the elfin potential and then uh it it condenses and and uh you know those of you who are veterans of these things know that i like to quote philo judaeus on the logos the logos was this informing voice that was the sine qua non of hellenistic spirituality everybody was trying to get a connection to the logos because it spoke the truth well, Philo Judaeus, who happened to be an exact contemporary of Christ, born before, died after, wrote a whole 15 volumes of commentary on the syncretic religions of his day. And at one point, he's discussing the etymology of the word Israel. Interestingly, the word Israel means he who sees, sees God. And so Philo-Judeus is rapping about this. And he says, what would be the more perfect logos? And then he answers his own question. He says, the more perfect logos would go from being heard to being beheld without ever crossing over a, a noticeable moment of transition. Well, that's what the approach of this elfin band is. It begins as a distant sound. It gets louder and louder and louder, and at a certain volume, it begins to spread out into the visual processing, and then whatever it was as sound gives way to what it is as, as light, as thing beheld. Well, these ikaros that these people sing in the Amazon are the same kind of thing. I mean, you make a tone 
and it's a blue ribbon four inches across that hangs in the air and then you just and you know it hangs there and then you can reach out and touch it well tones like that are literally like broad broad uh paint brushes when you paint with tone but when you modulate with syntax you begin to discover you can cut lace snowflakes with this stuff and you know you can produce roshocks and you can do other things and i this is just to me the most mysterious thing i mean this is i ask no more than to be in the presence of this it's uh it's beauty beheld it's that within the human organism poised at the apex of animal organization you're able to open this doorway with sound and then unimaginable beauty of an an, of an unimaginable style and quality pours through i mean this alien asymmetric orthogonal to ordinary expectations kind of beauty that i associate uh, with the absolute other the transcendent other yeah wouldn't that cause a person that say has a um, normal speech or normal sound it would cause them through that experience to somewhat like in- integrate their own sound or articulate their own sound so their own speech become more uh, together Oh yeah, if any of you are interested in this in that well-known anthology called Shamanism and Hallucinogens by Michael Harner, there's a classic article by Henry Munn called The Mushrooms of Language and he's talking about this. Yes, you see language is some kind of unfinished program. I mean, it begins with grunts and squeaks, it makes its way through huh yeah and you know and then you get into uh people saying things like you know if you would simply reset the assembly language to the first order of magnitude in the transformation table and this kind of thing and then it rises it's a gradient then you get eloquence persuasive speech and then you get poetry and somewhere between eloquence and poetry there's a side tree into demagoguery which you have to watch out for but it seems to me there's no barrier between any one of us starting out slow and building up to making everybody see what we mean when we understand something we unconsciously reach for those metaphors we say i see what you mean means i understand I was saying to someone this morning people imagine that telepathy is hearing what someone else thinks but this is a trivial notion of what it is what telepathy is is having someone else's point of view and when you have someone else's point of view notice you are them because to a large degree point of view is the defining characteristic of identity so our individual points of view if they could be somehow subsumed or shared we would then understand each other and i think this whole the whole thing about psychedelics is that they synergize cognition 
and that cognition allows us to image each other and to understand each other. I mean, we don't need to do that. After all, we come out of a style of troop, monkey troops, and they don't do this. They don't analyze each other's motivation and attack each other's religious foundations and uh, uh, this sort of thing. But we have created an artificial environment out of meaning. We don't know what language is but it is the thing which has drawn a line between us and the rest of nature. Our glory and our alienation is tied up with this thing about language. And somehow we have to carry, on, carry out a very careful deconstruction of language because the language that we have is killing us. I mean, it's making it impossible to think the thoughts that will allow us to save ourselves. And so we, we have to go back into the historical uh, situation, try to understand where we went wrong. The archaic abandonment of psychedelics was only the, the first and most devastating of these. But other things, other bad We've had a string of bad luck here on the European continent. I mean, as if the abandonment of the psychedelic goddess religion weren't enough, then out of a possible five or six choices as to how to signify our languages, we went for a phonetic alphabet. Bad choice. Bad choice. Because the phonetic alphabet is going to further distance us from any connection with anything real. You know, the ideogram carries you back into the image. Rebus writing forces you to keep a connection to the sound of the spoken language. The phonetic alphabet sets you free of all of this. And then this sets the stage for the narcissism and male dominance and obsession with abstraction that characterizes the rise of science. Yeah. In my psychological experience, I had a very strong experience of telepathy. Yes, well, I, I don't have very many uh, stories about absolute violation of the paranormal where there is no doubt that something weird was going on. But I, I had an experience, a couple of experiences with telepathy, which absolutely convinced me that I don't know what the defining conditions are, but it's not about tracking it down with the statistical turning of cards. There is a way, probably involving drugs, where you just can lock into the other person. My brother pulled a stunt where he not only he didn't read my mind, he found a memory of mine that I had never told anyone. And he began to recite it for a bunch of people. It was, it, it, it was a 14-month-old memory that I had not thought of myself for three or four months. And he just picked it up and started raving it, speaking all voices of all the people involved. 
I was appalled. And I don't know. You know and, but for me, you see, I only need a couple of things like that in a lifetime. I don't require that angels lead me up to my bed each evening. Uh, just a couple of places where they let the veil rise for a moment like that. You say, that's okay. I'll never forget. I saw it. I know it was real. Never forget this datum because this datum was extremely hard to come by. You were the witness and you had the parameters of proof on it and uh, it still happened. So, uh, you know, the, the stuff is out there. I think it's good to be, I guess I should say this, it's part of my method, that it's very good to be hard, hard and demanding and skeptical and rational. Too many voices whisper to us from, you know, every century of space and time they're whispering in Malibu. So we have to, uh, if it's real, who, who was it said just because they're dead doesn't mean they're smart? Uh, we, we have to... Uh, <laughs> We have to keep the pressure on the phenomena because the good stuff can take the test. The good stuff can take the test and you get through all the dross very quickly. If you're tolerant of dross, you'll spend so much time sorting dross that you'll never get anywhere. So I'm not very patient with mumbo-jumbo. My guru test is what can you show me? Quick. Somebody had a question over here? Yeah. Uh, a lot of what goes on in high-dose shamanic situations worldwide is what's called glossolalia. And glossolalia, which is normally defined as speaking in tongues, is something actually a little different from that, or at least the uh, kind induced by hallucinogens. It's as though you can move the expressive apparatus out of the English groove and then from within the depths of the organism, brain and body, comes a a highly modulated, syntactically structured sound. But it's not... It doesn't contain ordinary meaning. It contains emotional meaning. But there's no such thing as an emotional dictionary. Uh, We experimented with this quite a lot because I was so interested in the phenomenon of of syntax without meaning. And when I first encountered this in the psychedelic state, I couldn't... uh, I just thought it, it was like an ecstatic activity that I experienced as thought, but I couldn't tell anybody what it was because it just sounded too crazy to talk about and then over years of working with this I actually was able to slow it down and make it conversational and then I do it sometimes when I'm stoned and it's very very satisfying and I don't understand why it's satisfying Ralph Metzner and I once had this fantasy that we would hold a weekend where every English utterance had to be followed by what we called a phase state utterance. In other words, the ego could speak in English, but it had to then relinquish to the body, which would speak in Martian. And... uh, 
this stuff, it sounds like this uh, to give you the flavor of it. I de jingwai qua maxi ke petolginen wof wak de ke pipin. I te ne de jegang wapak de putitekt eko pende ka pohak de putitektet. And it's, um, you know, it has syntax. I played a long tape of it once to a linguist, and, and as she was backing out of the room, <laughs> she said, no O's, which is true. There are no O's in, in, in what you just heard. But uh, I don't know what we can do with it. I, I, I think that what, that's, what that stuff is, is it's reflecting... You see, it happens fast. It happens at a conversational speed. It happens at the same speed that English happens. When I modulate my lips to form words, my mind is producing in an English uh, dictionary. It must be working fairly rapidly. When I relax the need for meaning but keep producing this stuff, the syntactical organization is still there. Almost as though syntax, and I think probably Chomsky and that school has established this, that syntax is an assembly language, a deeper structure behind the local language. Well then, what is being expressed by that? Well, obviously, that for which there are no words. You know? Yeah. It seems so much of uh, what you're talking about has to do with a transition between the brain function and the mind. And, and even, again, this, the focus from the auditory to visual. Are there any, any brain-level cortical uptake studies on, on movement between broken Wernicke's area and occipital lobe visual stuff? I mean, you mean under the influence of hallucinogenic yeah. drugs? No, no. There was an effort to do studies like this a couple of years ago at Cal. They had a PET scan, and they wanted to create positron hot drugs and give them to human beings. And my brother was involved in that, but the funding uh, never gelled. No, we could answer a lot of these kinds of questions. See, I think that it's all about looking at this on many, many different levels. The brain of the individual, the interfacing between the mind and the brain, meaning the, the, uh, in, the intellectual and perceptual levers into the physical brain, and then also uh, you know, what this does societally and how it changes perception, how malleable are we, how much, uh, how much can be done. And I think the, you know, these questions are just not being looked at. If we were spending as much money on this as we're spending on smart bombs, uh, you know, we need to... The mind is obviously our... Uh, you know, I said last night that Tao means crisis and opportunity. The mind is either going to save us or kill us off. I mean, it is our contribution to the natural order of things. We alone bear it resplendent. I mean, dolphins, yes, and all that, but who knows? But we clearly are the minded uh, creature. Well, then, the efficacy, the meaning, the ultimate judgment on what mind is or is for is going to rest on how we, uh, what we do with it, how we apply it. And I, I... My little story last night about the hominids on the plains of Africa, it's the idea that 
psychedelics are catalysts of consciousness. Now, a catalyst is something which causes a slow-moving reaction to move much faster. That's all it is. And I don't doubt that over millions and millions of years, given the confluence of the factors on the African veld, eventually minded species may have arisen. And in fact, the Neanderthal uh, type may represent something like that. But uh, the extraordinary expansion of the human brain over a two million year period, I was reading a text recently and uh, they referred to it as uh, the single most rapid expansion of a primary organ in the entire history of animal life the speed with which the brains of the hominids transformed itself. Well, we're right in the center of all of this, trying to understand it, and, and we've got it damped down through 500 years of rationalism to that it's no big deal. But I wonder how much uh, you know, we really do know. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Unless I'm mistaken, uh, I think that I heard Terence say that ayahuasca was a cold infusion. Yet, as we all know, the two components of ayahuasca needed to be boiled together for many hours before it's uh, cooled and drunk. But I might have misheard him, because I know that uh, in talks he gave a few years later, he properly described the process of uh, making this interesting brew. And I'm only pointing this out for our new listeners here to let them know that when they listen to Terrence McKenna, it's the thoughts that his talks produce in your own mind that are important here. Because from time to time, he admits to uh, not having all of his facts in line. Now, when I listened to Terrence with you just now, I couldn't help but think that uh, here he was, uh, just approaching the peak of his mesmerizing powers of bardic flight, And this was also when he was just beginning to become well-known in many towns and villages all over the planet. And yet, less than ten years later, he was dead. Life is short, and uh, death comes all too soon, my friends. So don't let this day end without you having done something that makes you feel good about being alive at this incredible moment in time. Now, for our fellow saloners who are living in the States right now, It should be quite obvious to you that the mainstream media has been pushing the Black Lives Matter movement onto the back pages and uh, replaced that important news with stories that encourage a dislike of Muslims. Now, I don't expect that any of our fellow Saloners have fallen into this so-called Islamophobia, but here's a little suggestion for you to use uh, should one of your friends be leaning in that direction. What I do when I hear hateful speech directed at our Muslim friends is to bring to mind a Muslim who I greatly admire. And there are many examples that I could use. For example, one of George Washington's top officers during the Revolutionary War was a Muslim. And uh, (laughs) it was a Muslim who invented the ice cream cone. And what's more American than an ice cream cone? But the Muslim who I most respect is the man who I'll go to my grave believing has been the greatest athlete to live during my lifetime. He is none other than the great boxer Muhammad Ali. Now, some people may hold the fact that he refused to serve in the American war against Vietnam and uh, giving as a reason that, quote, no Viet Cong ever called me a nigger, unquote. And as a Vietnam veteran myself, I completely understand that point of view. 
Today, I wish that I'd had the courage to not participate in the killing of people with whom I had no quarrel. But I didn't have the same level of courage as did Ali, who was willing to give up everything that he had spent his life until then working for in order to make the point that this was not a necessary war. As a result, from the age of 25 until he was almost 29 years old, he wasn't allowed to participate in the sport of boxing. Yet, once the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unanimously in Ali's favor, his stance became one of the rallying cries of the anti-war movement. But for me, there was something more that Ali did several years later that I found to be above and beyond what most people of those days were doing to support our troops. At the time, I was quite active in the movement to bring home the more than 300 men who were still being held captive in North Vietnam, more than a decade after Nixon pulled out and abandoned them. And during that time, a significant amount of the funding required to keep our movement alive came directly from Muhammad Ali. In fact, even though he was in the midst of a personal medical emergency, he volunteered to go to North Vietnam himself and attempt to negotiate for the release of American prisoners. And Ali did this while veterans like Senator McCain and Senator Kerry did all that they could to bury the issue forever. Ali is the heroic patriot here, and in my opinion, Kerry and McCain are the traitors. But hey, that's uh, just my opinion. What I'm trying to say here is that whenever someone says something bad about a Muslim, I think of the love and hope that Muhammad Ali gave to the friends and family members of the men that the U.S. government intentionally abandoned. He is a great man, a black man, and a Muslim. We could surely use many more people like him. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.